Some years ago, I was serving on a committee in a presbytery. I believe it was called the Leadership Development Committee or something along those lines. This was up in Illinois some years ago. And the, the task of this uh, committee, of this team of, of men, was to serve as something of a, of a gatekeeper for the presbytery as a whole. The idea being that we were to, to exercise great care as, as men were coming into the presbytery to serve as pastors. And so it was the, the task, the assignment of this committee uh, to examine them, to probe, to ask some really hard questions, exploring both their, their theological convictions, but not just that, not just that, but to explore their heart to the degree to which the gospel had made connection in, in ways and furrowed into their hearts. And I, I can still remember uh, the room and the setting and some of the, the guys that were there when this very pointed question was asked by a member of our committee to this candidate for ministry. And the question was this, what will keep you out of the bed of another man's wife? That wasn't what you were expecting, was it? You were thinking, give me an outline of Romans. Now, what will keep you, ministry candidate, future pastor, brother in Christ, disciple of Jesus, what will keep you out of the bed of another man's wife? And the answer was a devotion to your own. Now, I put that before the house, not just as, an, as uh, counsel for all of us who are married or perhaps one day will be, but to use as an analogy, an analogy for the church as a whole, the lo local bodies, <coughs> with this question in mind, similar but different and applicable to a local church, what will keep us mindful to our mission? What will enable us to be committed to our calling, to indeed let first things be first, and to be attentive to those first things as, as first? What will do that? A devotion to Jesus. A devotion to Jesus and a very high view of his finished work on our behalf? That's the answer. That's the answer to that question, which then brings us to our new sermon series, Leviticus. That may surprise you too. That's okay. That's okay. But that's where we're heading over the next several weeks, uh, hitting the, the high points of those 27 chapters. It's not going to be 27 messages, or well, if you've been a part of any of my series, you'd probably think it'd be 50 messages, but um, it's going to be more in the neighborhood of 12, 12, 13, you know, we, we might expand on some things as we go, we'll, we'll see. So if you're trying to find that in your Bible, the, the text is going to be on the screen, but if you're trying to find that in your Bible, uh, it's Genesis, really couldn't be much easier, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, you don't have much further to go. Um, that's, that's where we're going uh, for this morning, and we're really looking at two bookend passages for the book, because this is meant to be something of an introduction to the book as a whole. Uh, so we're going to be 
just going to start in that way. It seems to be the best way to go. So Leviticus chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, and then skipping all the way over to the end of the book, chapter 27, verse 34. Okay, so hear now the word of God. Leviticus chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. And then, of course, chapters and chapters and chapters uh, proceed from that point that then take us all the way to the end, uh, the, the, the book in chapter 27, verse 34. These are the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses for the people of Israel on Mount Sinai. Well, can we pray? Lord, we, we would need prayer. We would need help in a study of any book of the scriptures, any of the 66. It doesn't have to just be this one. In any case, we need your help. We need your help in understanding from an, uh, intellectually grasping what is here, what's going on, what was going on then, what's going on now, the applicability one to another. But then beyond that, no matter what study in your word we are engaging in, we need your heart's work. We need surgery. We are in such desperate states, uh, straits, every single one of us here. And you know, you know where every heart patient arrived this morning, whether here in the room or watching online, uh, whenever, whatever that, that setting may be. We stand before you as needy men and women needing your help, uh, your hearts work within us. Oh, that we would have yours we would have yours. And we ask that now, as we begin this series, that you would have mercy upon us and give us your heart. We pray this in your name. Amen. When I was younger, I guess it's still true to some degree, but when I was much younger, I loved restaurant buffets. I loved it especially when my parents gave me free reign to go through the line by myself. Now, that didn't happen very often because they knew me. They still know me. They, they know my proclivity. They, know, they knew exactly what I was going to do. I was going to go through that line and pick and choose what I wanted, which meant my personal preferences would rule the plate. No squash. <laughs> so that's fine, and, and that's, that's okay to do. That sort of approach to the buffet line is fine to do. On occasion, of course, it's nothing wrong with, with that, but you don't want to make a habit of that. That's not really a way to go in terms of physically your nutritional diet, right? Because we need balance. For, for the sake of our physical health, we need balance. We need some, can I just put it this way, some level of maturity exercise towards our meals and not just operating out of what I want, what I want, what I want. Okay, transfer this over to the spiritual realm. What do our souls need? What do our hearts need? Not just to, to come up to uh, the, the scriptures operating as though it's a buffet and picking and choosing what we want, what our personal preferences might prove to be. 
If you do that, you know what it's going to mean. You're going to choose the easy. You're going to choose what's comfortable. You're going to choose what what's just feels better in, in that moment, if that's the approach that you take. And, and it means uh, if you take that, that buffet approach to the Bible, to your belief systems, it means you're, you're going to be imbalanced. You're not going to grow. You're not going to be matured. You're not going to be challenged. You're not going to be stretched. We need balance. Balance for our soul's sake and our spiritual diet. And the Lord in His grace, in these 66 books of the Bible, the 39 of the old and the 27 of the new, has given us exactly that. Balance. Exactly what we need for our soul's sake. He has given us the scriptures, I'm going to put it this way, as an, as an integrated gift. The scriptures, you could say, are an integrated gift. And what I mean by that is they are unified. There's a, a unity there. Uh, there is a comprehensiveness there. There is an interrelatedness there. It's already been said a few times before I even got up here this morning. The reality that it's one message, Genesis to, to Revelation, ultimately. It's about Jesus. It's a, this is about Jesus. The Lord is in his grace and his kindness to us as his people has given us the scriptures as an integrated gift. We need to receive that gift to read it, to read all of it with that in mind, including, yes, Leviticus. Now, this is meant to be an introduction. Okay, so we're, I'm not taking a deep dive this morning into Leviticus 1. Lord willing, that's where we're going next week, okay? Um, looking at the burnt offering and some things related to that. But um, for this week, just wanting to hit some, some high points as we're just beginning our time in this series, there's three things, three simple things I want to press into. And if you printed out or found uh, the, the bulletin out there in the hallway, uh, you, you can see this in your outline. The first thing is this, the value of Leviticus. And the second thing is the question of Leviticus. And then thirdly is the gospel in Leviticus, okay? So you have the value, the question, and the gospel, all right? So let's hit these in turn. First, the value of Leviticus. Why is it so hard to read? Why is it so hard to read, and why should we bother with it? I mean, honestly, Leviticus is the butt of all the jokes. About this time of year, when we're talking about our read-through-the-Bible plan for the year, how'd it go, you know, in a few weeks we're going to say, and the answer is, well, you know, Genesis is great, and Exodus, wow, that was amazing, and oh, Leviticus, Jesus. So why is it so hard, and why should we bother with it? Why not just skip it? Why is it so hard and why should we bother with it? Uh, struggles with reading Leviticus. Let me just give you a few. Let, let's just be honest. Let's name them. Let's face them. Let's consider them. Okay? So here's a few. The barriers, the problems that we get into. The one would be it's literary genre. Let's just put it out there. It's literary genre. Leviticus is basically a book of law, a book of commands. It's not scintillating. It's not exciting. There's very few narrative in here. I'm not building a case for this series, am I? It's very, it's, 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 the genre is 
legal rules, commands, and stipulations and, the, and warnings that come with that, it doesn't make for the kind of reading you want to curl up with by the fireplace at night and read, especially for long stretches of time. It's literary genre. That's the first. The second would be cultural distance. This is written some r- roughly 3,500 years ago to and about a nomadic people wandering in the wilderness on the outskirts of Canaan. Whoa. You see, so he's not just the literary genre, but the, the cultural distance. It's so much here in, in this about purity and impurity and animal sacrifices. I mean, the extent to which this morning you might see an animal in this room would be a service dog. And frankly, I know I could see just for some of you just last month, Advent candles kind of pushed you a little bit in terms of, you know, whoa, that's kind of spooky. Um, so you've got the, the literary genre, the, the, the custom, the, excuse me, the cultural distance, and r- building right off of that or stemming right from that, it would be the ritual practices, the focus on the ritual practices. And for a lot of us, we're kind of suspicious about that. You know, that kind of sounds like a cult. Um, not crazy about that. We, we, you know, so the, the kind of things that we read of here and the rituals and all of that and do this and don't do that and with great regularity smells kind of funny to us and we, we think, you know, that, that's, not, that's, that's just dead religion, right? I mean, ritual, we equate in our day, many of us, with dead religion and a culture and a culture that's all about spirituality, right? Um, we don't have a lot of experience with ritual. That's what we think. Actually, we do. Think about all the ritual that goes into, like, anniversaries and birthday parties and Christmas and Easter and weddings and funerals and graduations. It's like all this, there's a lot more we ha- that's going on than you think. Yet still, when you put it in somehow the garb of religion and faith, now we get suspicious. One more. Well, I'll just put, oh, this is the catch-all. Then you've got the, the uh, literary genre, the cultural distance, the focus on the rituals, and then just some others. And that one would be a lot of the laws... And certainly a lot of the penalties strike us as being really odd, if not just outright offensive. Okay, so there's that. We need to talk about that. Not today, but we will. Uh, In addition to that, um, it just feels disconnected. You don't really see, how does it fit? How does, I mean, okay, you said it's about Jesus. I don't see Jesus here. Okay, so how does it fit in the overall structure, the, the narrative, the flow from Genesis to Revelation? Okay, so those are some of the areas of our struggle Okay, let me counter that with some reasons for reading it. Uh, some reasons, so big picture, generally speaking, broad brush, uh, these would actually, it, these were in our most recent newsletter, so I'm just going to hit them real quickly. Uh, one would be the psalmist, we read this for, even from Psalm 119, but that's not the only text that you see that in the Psalter. The psalmists speak again and again and again and again of their deep love and affection for the law of God, which we know included Leviticus. So even that book, even that book, Jesus, the resurrected Jesus on the Emmaus Road, speaking to two forlorn disciples, depressed and distressed about what was going on and what had happened in Jerusalem, and don't you know, and he then teaches them from the Old Testament all that concerned him, and he makes the point that it's all about him, including, including that book, Leviticus. Dave read just a moment ago from 2 Timothy 3, where Paul is putting out there uh, the inspiration, the reality, it's breathed out by God, and the the purpose for the whole, all of it, all Scripture, 
described that way, including, including this book. So a, 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 a picture of, of maturity as a disciple of Jesus cannot be dismissiveness towards this book. Okay? That cannot be the posture of a mature disciple of Jesus, dismissiveness towards this book. One, one last uh, way to put it in terms of a reason for reading Leviticus is captured by a, a summary statement by Dr. J. Scalar, professor of Old Testament at Covenant Theological Seminary, in a wonderful commentary that he wrote on the book of Leviticus. And in an interview, this is how he describes the theme of the book. Listen to what he said. Leviticus is about a holy God living in the midst of a sinful, impure people, making a way for them to be in relationship with himself and reflect his kingdom and character and glory into the world. Whoa, you ever hear Leviticus described that way? With a relational component and a missional component as well. Now, you thought that was only in the New Testament. A relational element and a missional element at the same time. But it's not just the New Testament. It's the Old Testament as well and, and the book of Leviticus. So for all the struggles that we do have with the book, we've got some reasons for reading it, hence the value. Before I go on to the second point, let me just say this. There are a lot of straw man arguments put out there to belittle and demean the Christian faith that are connected to this book. And what I mean by that is this. The, the, the formula goes like this. Leviticus is stupid. The rules in here, the regulations in here, the penalties in here, it's all just ridiculous. So therefore, the whole thing is worthless. That's the formula. Here's a problem with the formula. Maybe... It seems ridiculous to you because you don't understand it. Now, what does that do to your formula? You know, that, that's an if-then statement. I just blew up your if. Okay, so, so what if it seems ridiculous because it's misunderstood? God in his grace has given us this, the, the whole of the scriptures as this integrated gift we need to read all of it with that in mind, which then takes us to the question. Now, the value, not the value, moving on now to the question of Leviticus, the great question that it raises that, believe it or not, we're all asking. And every man and woman and child on the face of this earth has asked this question, and Leviticus is drilling down on it. Um, now, before I get to what that is, let's talk a little, tell you a story, a little history, big picture here, where this comes from, its historical context. So when Leviticus is being written, the people of God, Israel, they have been in, in slavery, in bondage in Egypt for some 400 years. They cry out to the Lord, deliver us. The Lord in his grace and faithfulness to his promises does exactly that, raises up Moses as their deliverer. He leads them out of, of Egypt. They stop along the way at Sinai. There the Lord enters into a covenant relationship with his people. He gives them the Ten Commandments after, by the way, he saved them. Okay, that's a whole other sermon series. He gives them the Ten Commandments after the Exodus, in essence saying, this is how you are to live in response to my love. In addition to the Ten Commandments, this is Exodus. Okay, this is what you find in the book of Exodus. I'm giving you a fast-track overview of it. 
He then also gives them the plans, the layout, and the purposes, and all the rules, regulations, well, some of them anyway, pertaining to the tabernacle. The idea there being, I am your God. You are my people. I want to live with you. I want to dwell in your midst. That's what the tabernacle is about. All connected to this covenant-saving grace of the Lord. In fact, you get to the very end of, of the book of Exodus, chapter 40, verses uh, 34 through 38, and you see all this kind of, well, especially regarding the tabernacle, it's just, sometimes it's called the, uh, the, uh, the tent. Then the cloud, this is 34 to 38, Exodus chapter 40, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. Try and visualize this. But if a cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Okay, that's Exodus. That's the history. That's the context of where we are when we come to the book of Leviticus. Okay? The tabernacle. The Lord says, I want to live with you. I want to dwell in your midst. So the big picture now brings us to the great dilemma. And it's a huge dilemma. How can this be? The Israelites, any honest one, they have to be thinking, how can this be? They probably said something like, holy blankety blank, blank, blank. I don't know how this is going to work. Um, consider their history, just, just you know, pers- interpersonally, not, not you know, the big picture I just gave, but just interpersonally. Who are these people? What do we know of them so far? They've been whining and complaining against the Lord and his leaders from the very moment, if not before, it was before, before they even could get out of Egypt. If that wasn't bad enough, in the, and during the time in which Moses was up on Mount Sinai receiving from the Lord the commandments and uh, the plans for the tabernacle, they're down at the foot of the mountain, crassly worshiping a golden calf. This is not the A-team. These folks are every bit as hard-hearted and stubborn as every one of us. So here's the question. How can a holy God like that live with a people like us? That's the question. How can a holy God like that live with a people like us? And God gives an answer. Leviticus. The answer to that question is Leviticus, where he says... Here's how I'm going to deal with your sin. Here's how you're going to live with me in relationship with me. That's the answer to this huge, huge question. It's the greatest question that could possibly be asked. Think with it. no, No few of us know what it is to have problems with neighbors, right? You know, they've got the ugly lawn. They've got the loud party. They've got the barking dogs, right? And they just drive us crazy. Oh, those neighbors. Okay, 
What happens if God moves into the neighborhood? What happens, besides your property values, what happens if God moves next door? Now who's the problem, neighbor? You are. You are. God lives next door to you. Who's the problem? You are. How do we, as sinful men and women, live in the proximity, in relationship to a holy God? That's the question. You see the question? What a question. And the answer is Leviticus. Oh, there's so many good questions that we could ask. What's the purpose of life? What is the meaning of life? What, what's, is there any story? And if so, what is it? You know, part of a larger narrative that I could... Uh, is, is, is flourishing even possible in this earth, on this, in this world? Is, is that even possible? And if so, what would it look like? But down beneath all of that is how can sinful people like you and I live with their holy creator? That's the most important question we could be asking, and that is where Leviticus is taking us. Again, he is the God, God is in his grace has given us this integrated gift, and Leviticus is part of that, which takes us to the last point. So not just uh, the value of Leviticus and the question of Leviticus, but finally now the gospel in Leviticus. Um, you may have seen uh, there in your, your uh, quotes and notes, it's a very top quote that was uh, put there, this uh, line from St. Augustine. It's really thought-provoking. It's... it's phrased beautifully. The, he's speaking of the New and the Old Testament here, okay? So he says, the new is in the old concealed. The old is in the new revealed. Read it again. Just let that, just kind of, you know, chew on that a minute. The, the new is in the old concealed, the old is in the new revealed. The idea being that the gospel message is in both the Old Testament and the new. The bad news and the good news are in both. Are in both. Now, more apparent in one than the other, granted, but the foundations and the seed and the growth in both. In, in both. The bad news, let's talk about that. The bad news as Leviticus puts forward uh, as part of that gospel message. So you have God's holiness, his character, uh, the, the purity of who he is. And we see that with the offerings and the worship and the discussion on purity and impurity and the priests and the sacrifices. All of that is pointing towards who God is and his character and his holiness it's, it's spoken to quite directly in Leviticus 11, verse 44. Leviticus 11, verse 44. For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. But that, that holiness, I've alluded to this already, that his holiness collides with our sinfulness. And you see that again and again through the book of Leviticus. It's why we see the, the discussion on ritual states and procedures that have to be taken into account and, and, and played out with skin diseases and the consequences for illicit sexual and spiritual practices and uh, judgment brought down upon the head of faithless priests 
and warnings given time and time and time again. What's that about? Our sin, the sinfulness of our hearts, God's holiness, our sinfulness. That's the bad news. It's worse than you could have imagined. But the good news is better than you could have hoped. And we see that here in Leviticus as well. Uh, the, 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 God's provision for forgiveness of a way for there to be repentance. He touches, we, we'll get to this in the coming weeks in the purification offerings and the, the grain offerings, how that reconciliation, restoration of relationship is there. It's held out, provided by God himself. You see it. It's pointed. It's, it's, it's shown here in this, this book. The, the, the offer, the possibility, the provision of, of atonement is here. Most especially, of course, in the, in the day of, uh, of atonement, um, Leviticus chapter 16, Leviticus 16, uh, I'll just read verses 29 and through 31. And it shall be a statute to you forever that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves and should do, shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. Why? Well, for on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. Skipping down over to chapter 17, verse 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. And what shape ought a life take that has been touched and transformed by such grace and such forgiveness. Well, the Lord speaks to that again and again through the book as well. Leviticus 19, verses 1 and, and 2, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And that refrain repeats again and again through chapter 19 and you get to the end of chapter 19. Uh, to verse 37, and you shall observe all my statutes and all my rules and do them. I am the Lord. The old is there. The new is there. The good news and the bad is there. The themes are all here, all here. The foundation being laid for what was coming and how it was to come, and through whom it was to come. It's all, it's all there. What a gift we have in this book. What a demonstration of God's kindness towards us we see here. Of his provision for us that we see here. Of his longing for us that we see here. He wants us to not just, not just to know stuff, but to know him. He wants us to know Him. Do you know that's how He sees you this morning? He sees you, the person in your seat, the person you saw when you got up in the morning, this, 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 in the mirror this morning. He wants you to know Him. Now, I, I know that can be hard to see at times. 
hard to believe at times. The more we have stared at our circumstances, the more we have stared at the the way others have done to us, the disappointment and the hurt and the feelings, maybe not just feelings, of abandonment and betrayal. That's real. And you stare at that long enough and you will start to believe any human being could do this. Any one of us could do this. You stare at that long enough and you'll think, well, that's how God is too. No. No, this one will never leave. This one will never forsake. Ever. In fact, he is the one place to go when others do. Now, how do we know that? It's written on every page. It's written on every page. God in His grace has given us this integrated gift. Let's read that. Let's receive that with that in mind. Now, again, we're we're starting this series, and I just want to end with this for today. As we start this series in the book of Leviticus, and again, I really think we should say this of all the other 65 books. But as we begin this series in the book of Leviticus, we need to keep two things in mind. One is a preparation and a willingness to be challenged. A preparation and willingness to be challenged. And coupled right on with that is a posture of entering into this study with an open mind. And not being sure of our conclusions before we start. So some of you may be familiar with the, the novel and the, at least two movies that came out of this. The Stepford Wives. It's, it's a fairly dark comedy. Uh, the book was written back, I think, in the early 70s, if I'm not mistaken. Um, it, it's about a, a, a young woman, Joanna Eberhardt, who is a, uh, a gifted photographer and a, and a wife and a young mother who is suspicious about the other wives in this seemingly idyllic neighborhood that she and her family have just moved into. And she's convinced, for good reason, that the men of the town have turned their wives into robots. Okay? Now, I'm not recommending the book or the films. That's just, I'm just telling you. That's, that's what the plot line is. Um, Tim Keller so wisely, so helpfully, taps into this Stepford storyline and making a point about how we need to engage with God's authority over our lives and how he speaks to us in his word and the presuppositions and demands that we bring to the table. Let let me pick up uh, in in the course of as he's making this point. If, If you don't trust the Bible enough to let it challenge and correct your thinking, how could you ever have a personal relationship with God? In any truly personal relationship, the other person has to be able to contradict you. For example, if a wife is not allowed to contradict her husband, they won't have an intimate relationship. Remember the Stepford Wives movies? 
the husbands of Stepford, Connecticut, decide to have their wives turned into robots who never cross the wills of their husbands. A Stepford wife is wonderfully compliant and beautiful, but no one would describe such a marriage as intimate or personal. Now, what happens if you eliminate anything from the Bible that offends your sensibility and crosses your will? If you pick and choose what you want to believe and reject the rest, how will you ever have a God who can contradict you? You won't. You'll have a Stepford God. A God, essentially, of your own making, and not a God with whom you can have a relationship and genuine interaction. Only if your God can say things that outrage you and make you struggle, as in a real friendship or marriage, will you know that you have gotten hold of a real God and not a figment of your imagination. So an authoritative Bible is not the enemy of a personal relationship with God. It is the precondition for it. Now, surely none of us would actually say, I want a Stepford God. Right? Raise your hand if that's what you want. No one's, no one's looking. Okay. That's not what you want. Then you have to be willing to be offended. You have to be willing to be contradicted. You have to be willing to be challenged. You have to enter. You have to approach his word. Him with an open mind. In his grace, God has given us the scriptures, the whole of it, as an integrated, interrelated, unified gift. Let's read it with that in mind. Let's receive it with that in mind. All of it, including this book, Leviticus. Let's pray.